Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. <clears throat> good morning. Good morning. It's funny. I was thinking to myself, you know, it's interesting that the, the pastor would be gone and assign one of the biggest passages for us to deal with this morning. <laughs> but uh, praise God that we're here and we're gathered and we're able to dig in together um, uh, God's Word. Have you ever had the misfortune of talking to someone who couldn't stop talking about themselves. I don't want you, don't look around, okay? I don't want to know who it is, and hopefully it wasn't me you're thinking of. But we have, haven't we? People who somehow manage to steer every conversation back to themselves. And if we're honest, okay, and I, I, I'm going to just say it, I think we do this too. We do this too. And if you don't agree with me, you can do what I did. Ask your wife, Okay? Or ask your husband, or your parent, or your children, or your, or your friends. In fact, turn to the person beside you now, okay? And I want you to ask them this question. Do I have a tendency? Go ahead, go ahead. You can turn to each other. Do I have a tendency to make everything about me? And see the response. <laughs> yeah, I see some nods, some things to discuss on the ride home. In fact, I would argue that in the world we live in today, it's expected that we should speak about ourselves. It's considered a virtue to stand boldly and to express who you are. And I think it's true, isn't it, that even in the church, we applaud those Christians who boldly and unashamedly stand up and say who they are, tell the world who they are and what they believe and what they stand for on this issue or on that issue, perhaps we think this is how the world will come to know Jesus. But as we come to our text this morning, uh, the apostle tells us the testimony of a man named John the Baptist, as you heard being read. And if we're going to follow him for a span of just three days. That's what you, one day, then the next day, then so three days in total. And as we hear him speak, we realize that there is a very subtle but an important, an incredibly important difference in the way that John spoke. And um, the way I can summarize it, I, I have to give, give credit to the commentator Matthew Henry. This is the way he summarizes it, and this is the big idea that I hope you take away from this morning. If you take nothing else away, this is the big idea, that those speak Best for Christ that say least of themselves. Okay? Now that's KJV English, right? So I'm going to say it in a different way. Um, those who speak best for Christ are those who speak least of themselves. Least of themselves. That's the big idea. That's where we're headed, okay, in this, in this passage. And since it's such a large text, I want to divide it into three parts, okay? Three parts based on the different days. The first day, the second day, the third day that we're, that we're looking at John's life. On the first day, verses 19 to 28, we're going to see how John spoke 
least of himself. On the second day, verses 29 to 34, we see how John spoke best for Christ. And on the third day, verses 35 to 37, we're going to see how speaking this way leads people to Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're going, and that's the, that's the road map. And so with that, why don't we dive in? If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. You'll need your Bible for this. There are Bibles in the pew or in the chair before you if you need it. And um, again, I'm in the ESV translation. Uh, John chapter 1. So after 18 majestic verses, right? That was the prologue that we've been covering so far in this series. We've done the first 18 verses. And we come now to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All right? So just as a review, look at verse 1 of John 1. Remember how John introduced Jesus? He calls him the Word, right? The Word who was with God and the Word who was God. Right? That's how he introduced Jesus. Then you skip down to verse 14, and what does he say? He, he tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's verse 14. And then if you come to the beginning of our text, verse 19, Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. Okay, 30 years have passed, and his ministry has begun with the baptism of John. Okay? So, follow along with me. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John. Look at verse 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? You know, this is, as I thought about this, is, this is probably the most fundamental question you can ask a person, isn't it? Who are you? And I know sometimes, you know, sometimes we ask this question sarcastically, like, who are you? Like, who do you think you are, right? Sometimes we do that sarcastically. But in a very real way, think about this, isn't it true that most of the questions people ask of you either directly or indirectly seek to answer this basic question? Who are you? Who are you? What is different about you? What is your value? What's so important? What's so worthy of, about you? Who are you? What's so significant? How many billions of dollars, I was thinking about this, how many billions of dollars have social media companies made by doing what? By simply providing a platform for you and I to tell the world about us, who we are, to speak about ourselves. And so it was that the Jews sent priests, and they sent Levites. Levites were almost like a security detail for the priests, okay? And so they come and find John the Baptist, and they ask him the simple question, who are you? Look at verse 20. Here's his response. He says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. What does he say? I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Now, that's an interesting way to answer the question, who are you? Right? It's like if I asked you, who are you, and you came to me and said, well, here's who I'm not, right? Right? That's an interesting way to, I mean, it's not the way you and I would have answered that question, right? When someone asks you, who are you, you would probably say, well, how much time do you have, right? Like, like let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you how I'm different, how I'm special, how, how I compare relative to everyone else. But in John's answer, we actually see that his heart is a bit different. There's something different here because for him, there was but one reference point. 
from which he could answer any question about himself. And what was the reference point? It was Christ. Yeah, Christ. It was Christ. In a sense, he's saying, it doesn't matter who I am. Forget me. Forget me. Remember Christ, the Messiah, the eternal creator. What have we learned in John 1 so far? That he is the creator in whom is life and light and glory and grace and truth. And so John says, I am not the Christ. That's his response. Okay? But the Jews were not satisfied, right? That's not what they were asking. That's not what they wanted to hear. And so look at verse 21. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Okay, so you're not the Christ. So are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. I'm not. Now to understand this, what, what the priests are doing, we need some background. Okay, we need a little bit of background. Some of you know this, but the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, never died. Do you guys know that? He never died. At the end of his life, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings that he was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And then at the end of the Old Testament, the very last book of our, of our Old Testament, Malachi, the prophet Malachi um, prophesies that before the Messiah comes, you know, the, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah. Before the Messiah comes, Malachi tells us, that Elijah will return. I want you to see this. Malachi chapter 4, uh, verse 5. Here it is. Uh, Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, okay, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So from this, the Jews, just to give, give you an idea of where, where their minds were at, the Jews took this prophecy to mean that, okay, that means the same prophet Elijah will literally return to earth, the same one from, from, from so many years ago, will return to earth before the Messiah comes. That's what they believed, right? In fact, um, that's what they believe even today, right? Because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, right? Jews today are still waiting for the Messiah. So if you've ever attended a Jewish Passover Seder, I don't know if Daniel Isaac is here. He's led us in Passover Seder meals before. But do you know what they do? They have a, have a seat at the table that's left empty. Why? Because in case, just in case, Elijah returns. So they're still waiting for Elijah, who is supposed to be the forerunner to the Messiah. So when the priests ask this question to John the Baptist, what they're really asking is, are you Elijah? Are you the Elijah, literally Elijah from the Old Testament who's now back? And of course, to this, John has to answer truthfully, no, right? No, he's not. He's not literally Elijah. But sadly, uh, the Jews had misunderstood that prophecy from Malachi. They had misunderstood the prophecy. They, they, they concluded the wrong thing. They interpreted it incorrectly. And when John the Baptist was born, the angel Gabriel came and corrected that misunderstanding. And I want to show it to you here. Luke 1, 17. It'll come up on the screen. The angel Gabriel, when he announced the birth of John the Baptist, this John the Baptist, look what he says. He says, John will go forth, go, go before the Messiah, before the Christ, in the spirit, look at it, and power of Elijah. Do you see that? The, the difference, right? 
He's not saying he's going to be Elijah. He said he's going to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. So in this way, the angel is trying to correct the misunderstanding that the Jews had, that they were expecting Elijah to literally come back. But actually, it wasn't Elijah who would return, but rather a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. And who is this? Well, Jesus uh, leaves us no doubt. Look at Matthew 11. He says, he settles the matter. He says, for, for all the Old Testament, the prophets and the law, they prophesied until John. And then he says, if you're willing to accept it, he is, next verse, uh, he is Elijah who was to come. He is. He is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, even though he's not what the Jews expected. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And so, the Jews are trying to figure, who is this John the Baptist? So then they continue. Look at verse 21. Then they ask, well, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And this is also confusing because... Because, you know, we think, well, John the Baptist is a prophet, isn't he? But the question is, are you the prophet? Okay, so, so, so again, we have to look back at the Old Testament. All the way back in the days of Moses, um, God promised that he was going to raise up a prophet. Okay, I want to show you this. Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. God, do you remember the smoke and the, and, the mountain, and, 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 and the people said, we don't want to hear directly from God. Do you remember this? They were so terrified of God. And so he said, I'm going to raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Do you know who this is? It's not John. John is a prophet. He is a prophet. But he's not the prophet that the Old Testament was promising in this verse. This is referring to Jesus. This is referring, the New Testament tells us that this is actually referring to Jesus. <laughs> and so these Jews have asked, okay, so, 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 so hang on, so, so you're not the Christ, right? And you're not Elijah, and now you're telling us you're not the prophet. So by now you can imagine they would be pretty frustrated, right? Like I'd be annoyed too, wouldn't you? Right? You've asked all these, you're, you're basically, all I want to know is who you are. It's a basic question. It feels like it should be. And all you've told me, John, is who you're not. Right? And so look what they do. Verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So those of you who are teachers here, you know, you, you, you've used this tactic before, right? In your classroom. When you ask a question that's too broad and the students are giving you all kinds of answers that you're not looking for, what do you do? You narrow the question, right? It's too open-ended. You've got to make it more closed-ended. And so what do, you, what do they do? They, they, they stop asking John, John, who are you? And, and in verse 22, what do they ask? What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself? What are they asking? They're, Just tell me about yourself. We don't want to know about Christ. We don't want to know about anyone else. We just want to know about you, John. And at this point, um, I think if this was you or me, I think we would be very hard-pressed not to answer the question, right? Not to just talk about ourselves, right? If it was you or me. But I want you to see how John responds, okay? Look at verse 23. It's subtle, but look at verse 23. Look what he says. He says, 
I am the voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I am the voice of one. I, I don't know if you, you understand what he just did. Do you know what he did? He just reduced everything about himself to a mere voice. Do you, he didn't even mention his name. He didn't even say, I am John the Baptist. He says, I am the voice of one. Like, like, like it could be anyone. He's saying, I'm the voice of one. He took all of his, his body, his personhood, his name, all of it was reduced and belittled to a voice. Do you see how he spoke least of himself? Least of himself. This picture that... Um, uh, from the prophet Isaiah, I want you to picture a prince is coming into a city, okay? A prince is coming, and ahead of the prince is this messenger, okay? Nobody knows the messenger's name. He's not important, right? He's just a messenger. So he's running ahead of, the, ahead of the prince. Prince is coming into the city, and the messenger's running, and he's telling the people of the city, stop what you're doing, make room, make way. You've got you to gotta level this path. You gotta, the, the king is coming. The prince is coming. Move aside. Prepare yourselves. Repent. And this is who John was. This is who John was. But the Jews did not like what he was implying here. Okay? And for us to understand that, you've got to look at verse 24. Okay? Look at verse 24. We, we learn something very important. Now, these Jews had been sent from who? The Pharisees. Okay? So if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that the Pharisees were well-versed in the, in the Scriptures, right? They knew the, the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament for us. They knew it very well, far better than the common people, right? So they were very self-righteous. The Pharisees were very, very self-righteous, which means that they think to themselves, why would we need to prepare anything? Right? Like, like, you're telling us we need to prepare the way, we need to repent. Like, we already have a straight way to God. Right? We, 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 we are God's people. <laughs> Why would we need to repent? They don't like what John is implying, that they need to prepare the way or do something to get ready. They don't like it. And so look what they do in verse 25. They challenge John's ministry. Look at verse 25. So what do they ask him next? They say, then why are you baptizing? Like, you're not the Christ, right? <laughs> you're not Elijah. And if you're not the prophet, what gives you the right to, 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 to authorize a ritual of repentance? What gives you the right? Who are you? Now, at first, when I, when I was preparing this message, honestly, I didn't understand the gravity of why they were so offended. Why would the Pharisees be so offended by what John is doing, right? It's just water, it's bad, right? But you have to understand how the Jews saw water baptism, okay? We talk about water baptism a lot now as Christians, but that's different than how the Jews saw water baptism. It's very interesting. In their rituals, whenever a non-Jew, okay, a Gentile, Whenever a non-Jew or a Gentile converted to Judaism, that's when they were baptized in water. 
Does that make sense? So, so water baptism was for Gentiles, right? It was for people who were outside the covenant of God, people who were considered unclean, right? I mean, Jews hated Gentiles. They, they hated their, their pagan practices. They, but, but if such a person were to repent and believe in God and, become, and, and convert to Judaism, they were baptized with water to symbolize that they've been cleansed. Okay? That, 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 that they're now part of the covenant community. But it wasn't for the Jews. It was for Gentiles. So with this in mind, can you imagine now why the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees would be so um, offended by what John is doing? Can you imagine why? Because what is John doing? He's telling Jewish people, right? People who are supposed to be inside the covenant already, already having a relationship with God, he's telling them that they need to repent, right? And so whenever a Jew went to John the Baptist and got baptized, what they were essentially admitting to the world is what? I'm no better than a Gentile. I am no better than an unclean, pagan Gentile. It's astounding. And it was offensive, to the, to the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites, this is egregious, and the Pharisees want to know why. Why are you doing this, right? And so I want you to see his response. Look at verse 26. Once again, he speaks least of himself. Look at verse 26. John answers them, I baptize with water. I baptize with water, but. It's a big but, right? So here's what I do, but. Among you stands one who you do not know. Um, Verse 27, the end of it. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So here they come, right? They're challenging John's ministry, right? They're saying, what right do you have to do what you're doing? And how does he respond? How would we respond, by the way, if someone challenged your ministry? Probably we would defend ourselves, right? Probably we would justify ourselves and say, here's why I deserve to be doing what I'm doing. But not John. Look at him. In fact, he acknowledges how inferior his ministry is. He, why? Because he says, I baptize with water. This is just water. Right? I am, I am no more and do no more than what you see here. This is an external you know, um, uh, uh, representation, a, a symbol a sign of repentance, but I am not the one who saves. This is water, but I'm not him. And you know, I think there's some lesson here for us. Um, I had to pause here because, you know, sometimes, uh, maybe you've done this too, certainly I felt this as well. We look at our lives and you look back at the, at the evil things you've done, Take this week, okay? You look back at the bad things you've done and, and the, or the things you regret, and sometimes our conscience makes us feel, you know, I'm sorry about that. I had that happen this week. I'm sorry about what I did. I'm, I feel really bad. I feel really awful. I feel remorse for what I've done. And sometimes we think that, okay, if I can just come to God and I can say I'm sorry, that He'll forgive me. Don't we think that? Right? If I just come to God and I say, I'm sorry for what I did, I'm repentant, then He will forgive me, won't He? That's what we think. But the truth is, friends, 
you and I could feel sorry all day long. All day long. Right? I mean, even people outside the church have a conscience, don't they? <laughs> they do. And when they do things wrong, they feel bad too. Right? They feel sorry. But without Jesus... Without the Word became flesh, walking this dust-covered earth in those sandals which you cannot even untie. You're not even worthy to untie them. Without Him dying for sin and rising from the dead, apart from Jesus, do you realize that there is no forgiveness for your sins? There isn't. It doesn't matter how repentant you are. Do you, do you realize that? So this is why John's baptism is so inferior to the baptism we see today in the church and, and in the early church. What's the difference? John's baptism was powerless to do anything. It's just water, right? It just means that you're sorry for your sin, but it doesn't forgive you. No, but baptism today, the early church, how did it change? It's not just about repentance. It's about identifying yourself with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see the difference? The baptism of John and the baptism we see today. And so as this first day comes to an end, we see how John spoke least of himself. He spoke least of himself. He spoke least of his own ministry. And you know what's so remarkable about this? Okay? Um, I just want to add this in. Do you realize, and, Ma and, and Andy, you can bring it up, that verse, Matthew 11. Do you realize that Jesus calls John the greatest of his generation. Do you realize? Like, like, Jesus says, what an endorsement, right? It's one thing for your mom or dad to say, oh, you're so great, right? They love you. They have an inst they're, they're biased. But here's Jesus saying he was the great, and, and he was greater than anyone who has ever been born before him. Do you realize that? Like sometimes when we look at the camel hair clothes, you're like, okay, that's weird. And, and then he eats honey and locusts. It's kind of, oh, I don't know. That's not what I would eat and you would eat. But we think, of, but don't forget, John was truly and historically great. What, about, what am I saying? If anyone had reason to talk about themselves, surely it was John. Surely it was John. And yet, he spoke least of himself. There's a lesson there for us, isn't there? Which brings us to day two. Look at verse 29 now, day two. Okay, so he spoke least of himself. Now let's see how John spoke best for Christ. Okay, how did he speak of Christ? Look at verse 29. The next day, day two, he saw Jesus coming toward him, right? And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want a memory verse, there it is, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So remember that picture, right? So the prince is coming to the city, and here's the messenger, and the messenger's been running around saying, okay, make room, make, prepare the way, right? Stop what you're doing, repent, get ready, he's coming. And then a moment comes when he stops and he turns his head, and his eyes see the prince. The prince has arrived. So now, what does the messenger do? Like, what else can he say now except to point and say, look, there he is, right? That's, that's what the messenger does. He doesn't keep saying, he just looks at, behold, there is the Christ. 
He identifies him. He identifies him. You know, to speak best for Christ doesn't just mean speaking least of yourselves. That's not all it means. Just to speak less of yourself, to be quiet about you, to, to not to stop talking about yourself so much. But rather, we must speak of who Jesus is. We have to identify him, right? We have to identify who he is to the people, to people in our lives. And so that's what John does. He calls him the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. So, so for Jewish people, that, that picture of a lamb is very, very familiar, right? I want to give you a few examples. Way back, their forefather Abraham. You guys remember this story, right? Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham is taking Isaac to be sacrificed, right? And God, just before God prevents Abraham from sacrificing his own son, right? There's this awkward moment. Okay, I don't know if you, you remember this, Genesis 22, where the boy asks his dad, uh, Dad, like, I see the fire and, and I see the wood. Um, where, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Right? It's an awkward moment. And Abraham, somehow in faith, God reveals to him, but he speaks and he says, God will provide the lamb. Right? which indeed he has done in Jesus. Skip ahead to when the Israelites are escaping a slavery in Egypt, right? And what is it that they put on the doorposts of their homes to save themselves from the final plague? What is it? It's the blood of the Passover lamb. Pointing again to what Jesus would do, that his blood would save us if it's applied to our life, would save us from the wrath of God. And you skip ahead to the prophet Isaiah. When the prophet Isaiah talks about silent as a lamb led to the slaughter, what was he prophesying about? What was he foreseeing by the Spirit? What was he seeing? Christ. The way he went to the cross and was crucified for us. So, what is this all for? Why was Jesus the Lamb of God? I love that we sang that song. Why? And the song said it. It was my death you died. Right? I think the third line, fourth line. It was my, of the chorus, it was my death you died. It's what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. Right? Someone is dying in your place as a substitute for you to atone for the sins of the world, for the sin of the world. You know, this word world, if you look at verse 29, it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some people think, okay, and this is a dangerous way to think, that this means that Jesus has died for every human being's sin. Okay, that means everyone is saved. Right? If Jesus died for everyone's sin, he's paid the price for everyone's sin, that means, well, universal, everyone is saved. But we have to be careful in our understanding here. It, what does it really mean? It means that the offer of salvation is to the entire world. It's to all. It's to anyone and everyone in the human race. 
without distinction, without discrimination. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If Christ takes away the sin of the world, why not yours? Why not yours? That's what it means. The offer is available to anyone and everyone. And church, isn't that encouraging? Think about the person you're praying for. Who are you praying for? If Christ has died for the sin of the world, why not for the person that you're praying for? Your loved one, your friend, your coworker, colleague, why not? The offer, no one is beyond the offer of salvation. No one is beyond it. If they would receive, if they would believe. So, John continues. Here's, remember, he's speaking best of Christ. Look at verse 30. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was, or as the NASB says, he existed before me. Now, we covered this before. Does that sound familiar? Hopefully. We covered it last week, right? Verse 15. So, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I want to draw your attention instead to verse 31. Look at verse 31, and you're going to learn something remarkable, okay? About what it takes to identify Jesus. What it takes to, to identify Jesus and recognize him. Okay, what does it take? Look at this verse, 31. John says, I myself did not know him. I didn't know him. Okay? But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. I myself did. You know, when I was growing up in church, I used to think this way, and maybe you think this way too. If I had only met Jesus, like in person, I know we can read about Jesus, right, in the Bible. We read about him. But sometimes I used to think of myself, if I could have only met Jesus, if I could have walked with him, right, if I could have talked with him, how much greater my faith would be today. Have you ever thought that way? I'll be honest, I've thought that way. How How much better I would follow him if I had only met him in person. But what are we discovering from verse 31? That John did not know Jesus was God. Do you know who John's mom was? John's mom was Elizabeth, right? And do you know who Jesus' Jesus' mom on earth was? Mary, right? So Mary and Elizabeth, do you know that they were relatives? They were relatives. So that means that John and Jesus, and they're only a few months apart, they were cousins. I don't know the nomenclature, right? Like first cousin, second removed. I don't know anything about that. I just know they're, like, I just use the word cousin, right? Does anyone use that anymore? Second cousin, twice removed? I don't know. Point is, they were related in some way. Can you imagine that? That John and Jesus, just a few months apart, cousins, talk about being an eyewitness of the life of Christ on earth, right? Talk about seeing him on earth, and yet we learn that John did not know that Jesus, he didn't recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. What that tells us, church, is that the depravity of sin The human condition in ourselves, we cannot, we could not, we could never have recognized Jesus as the Son of God. That is the extent of our sin. That is the effect of sin. Unless and except and only by the Holy Spirit. Only by the Holy Spirit will someone be able to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. And say, Jesus is Lord, only by the Holy Spirit. And that's the same is true of of what we see in in the next verse for John. Look at verse 32 
Okay? The Spirit's job is to identify Christ to people. Look at this. John bore witness. He says, this is the story. This is what happened. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. Okay? So, verse 33, I myself did not know him. He's being very clear, guys. I didn't know. And then he says, but he who sent me to baptize with water, who sent John the Baptist to baptize with water? Who was it? God, right? God sent, okay. So, he who sent me says to, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Right? And then he says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, what, what is this telling us? God revealed Jesus to John by the Holy Spirit. Just like it's necessary even today. You cannot recognize the Holy Spirit. You could have, been, you could have lived then. You could have lived now apart from the Holy Spirit. And so, and so what happened was, here's the, now we're learning the backstory, right? Here's the backstory. God had spoken to John beforehand, okay? They prearranged a sign, okay? A sign for John the Baptist to look out for. Right? Because you have to wonder, like, how did John know that Jesus was Jesus, right? How, how was it revealed to him? Well, here it is. God gave him the sign that when the Spirit descends like a dove and remains on someone, that person is the Son of God. That was the sign. And so when Jesus came to be baptized by John and John witnesses the Spirit coming down and remaining on Jesus, that's when John knew that surely this is the Son of God. This is the one who is full of the Spirit at all times, right? And John, and, and look what happens to John's water baptism. Remember the water baptism, right? That inferior is just about repentance. His water baptism gives way to the more, the far greater baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, right? The baptism with the Holy Spirit. So people get tripped up on this verse, verse 33. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it a second event that happens later on? And, and we believe, as, as, as most of Orthodox, Reformed Christianity believes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the event at when, when you come to know Jesus, when you are reborn, when the Spirit comes into you and regenerates your heart and fills you and empowers you for service and changes you so that you are born of God. You're born again. You're added to the church. You're given eternal life. So, John spoke best for Christ while speaking least of himself. And here's the, here's the, um, the conclusion, okay? Here, here's, here's what we see on the third day. So, the Jews leave, right? The Jews leave. The crowds disperse. Picture this, right? The crowds are gone now. And the third day begins... And now we're going to see the effect of John's words, okay? The effect of his, how he spoke, his testimony, how speaking leads people to Jesus. Look at verse 35, please. Verse 35, uh, brother. Here it is, the third day, the next day. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, just two. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by again and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 37, and the two disciples heard him say this, and what did they do? And they followed Jesus. And they followed, they went, they went after to see if this was true. 
So in this final day, John is not in the same spotlight as he was on days one and two, right? Like the, the same crowd, the Jews have left, the, the crowds are not there. He's just with, verse 35 says, he's standing with just two of his own disciples, people he probably knows quite well. And yet, what do we learn? That whether he is in public or he's in private, his speech did not change. You see that? Why do I say that? Because in verse 36, he says verbatim, he says exactly what he said before. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. I think there's a lesson there about how we speak in one setting versus another. But his speech did not change. He repeats to the, to the two disciples what he had said before the masses. Only this time, we see the effect. Look at verse 37 again. We learn that after hearing him, these disciples left John and they followed Jesus. His testimony led the two men to leave him and follow Jesus. And what an impact. You know, sometimes we look at this number, we think, okay, it was just two guys, right? And some of you, you have ministries, you only have one person you're ministering to, or maybe two people at most you're discipling. And you think, what impact will this have for the kingdom? Well, look at this. One of the disciples, you know who it was? We learn later, it was Andrew, right? Andrew would go and bring his brother, not Stefan. I know, you guys were waiting for me to pull it off, right? Not Stefan. We have an Andrew and Stefan here for those watching online who don't know our church. I'm so sorry for the inside joke. But he goes and he brings Simon Peter, his brother, who would become the Apostle Peter, right? The leader of the early church. All from this disciple, Andrew. And the other disciple, though he is not named, many scholars believe him to be none other, none other than the Apostle John himself who wrote the very book we're reading and, and five books in the New Testament. What impact, church? Just two disciples. What an impact. Isn't this the impact you and I long to have? You know, as I look back, my week was, um, those of you who are at prayer, you know my week was a very stressful week. And I'm sure many of you have your own things that you've been carrying with you. And... Um, I don't want the impact of my speech to be all about me. I don't want people to leave conversations with me thinking about me. That's not worth it. Isn't this the impact we want to have, that people would hear us speak, and when they leave us, they would leave everything and follow Jesus? Isn't that what we want as a church? And so as I conclude I want to return full circle to where we began. We said that those speak best for Christ that speak least of themselves. And as you go home, and as you start your work week, you're going to have conversations with colleagues and coworkers or students and friends or family. You're going to have lots of conversations. And the question is, do your conversations testify to Christ the way John's did? Do people leave conversations with you and, and, are, and are they pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God who, takes away, who can take away their sins? Is that how they leave conversations with you? Or do those conversations leave your, your, your listeners to think about who you are? Who you are. So worship team, I'm going to ask you to come up. 
And this is our prayer. God, help us. As, as our elder Bruno prayed um, so um, rightly, help us to follow the example, the example set by John the Baptist. If you can stand, church, and um, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. I know we can feel convicted. I feel so convicted about the week I've had, the things I've said, the, the way I've led my conversations, and really they've all been about me, myself and I, let's pray for God to help us to look, to say, look, behold, this is Christ, to point people to Jesus that all may turn their eyes to be Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the example of John the Baptist. I thank You, God, that we learn here that, yes, he was great. He was historically great. And the world would say that great people should talk about themselves. They're the ones who should tell us more about themselves, about what makes them so great. And yet, we see the example here that though he was historically great, he spoke least of himself. He spoke least of himself. And in doing so, he spoke best for you, Jesus. He spoke best for you, Jesus. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, that those of us who are saved, that, oh Lord, um, you have already come, you've lived, you've died, you've risen from the dead, and you've ascended into heaven. And so our duty now as messengers is not for people to know our names. We're, we're, we're just messengers. Help us, O oh God, to simply turn our heads, to look at you, and to point and to say to people, Behold, this is Christ. This is the Christ, the Lamb of God. Help us to do that, O oh God. Let people leave conversations with us thinking about who you are and not thinking about who we are. And Lord, for those of us who don't know you, those here in the church sanctuary, those watching from home, O oh Lord, that offer, that sweet and precious offer, that announcement that John made, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh God, there may be someone here. There may be someone at home who's wondering to themselves, could that be me too? Could, could, could I be included in the world? And could my sin really be forgiven? I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm convicted. I feel bad. I want to be forgiven. But but could I really be forgiven? Could my sin be taken away? And to that soul, O oh God, we declare the truth of the gospel that yes, any and all who receive Him, those who receive Christ, who believe in His name, yes, you have been given the right to become children of God. Children born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, God, I pray that you would do your work in every heart. Let every heart be turned to Jesus. Thank you again. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen.